Brother, good morning. How are you doing? Very well. Very well. I always say very well. Um, I think that's just positive thinking, but there's a lot to be grateful for. I'm well. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I won't say that my week has been a dead week, but it definitely hasn't been a good week. Uh, Work has been the main culprit for my week being difficult in that COVID is just ravaging my team which means that I've lost two people in a short space of time and I'm really struggling with the workload. Uh, it's not something that I can't handle. It's not some. It's not somewhere that I haven't been before, as you know. But yeah, at the beginning of the year, I think most people want quite a, a smooth start and yeah, there's, there's chaos and there's, there's, there's firefighting to be done. So trying to make the most of it and what tends to happen is after a really difficult like week like this the following week is a little bit more peaceful but hopefully that's not me foreshadowing another challenging week but yes we'll see Dig, digging into that a little bit further um you're someone who's rather good at crisis management um how do you overcome something as uh, spontaneous irregular as, as as covid in the workplace what is your strategy right now? Um, throw away the original plan, I think, is the first <laughs> the, the first move. And this is very intimidating for some people in terms of we had a plan. We've now had some unforeseen external circumstances which have made that plan almost untenable. We have to now get rid of that plan. There are factors that our plan didn't account for. So that plan is no longer fit for purpose. We must throw it away and we must start again. And I'd say the talent or the skill here is being able to plan in a short space of time. I appreciate that that's not everybody's forte and it makes some people incredibly uncomfortable. But even if you sacrifice a day to planning, in the long term, it will be worth it. Um, I think that the challenge that some people face is just trying to continue with their old plan even though it's not working rather than almost taking a step back, losing some time so that you can refocus your efforts and refocus your time. And one of the things, for instance, that comes out of a plan like this is, okay, well, I can't deliver on all of the uh, objectives and on all of the tasks that I wanted to which means i need to pick up the phone and speak to stakeholders and let them know that things are going to be delayed if i tried to just crack on with the original plan and deliver all of the output which was promised at the end of last year beginning of this year then i would leave a lot of people disappointed when they weren't getting their output so things like that are really key now you say that um off the cuff but it's just so poignant. Um, Dunkirk, the film, had the tagline, survival is victory. Mm. And I think oftentimes people do not do what you have just suggested, which is to recalibrate and identify what the new goals are. Yeah. Be willing to throw away the initial blueprint and plan because that's no longer fit for purpose. Some people don't do that because it hurts their their feelings that they invested so much time on that. And yep. they're dogged that we are going to continue to play this, this book. <laughs> We're going to continue to execute on this tactic, even though 
it's a new sport. Yes. <laughs> you have to use different apparatus. That's the first time I'm hearing from you. Get out of your feelings. Second, be willing to stop in the midst of being shot at and plan. Now, when you're in, in the midst of it, when you've gone over the top and bullets are flying everywhere, there's a immediate almost desire just to move. Keep on moving, keep on moving, keep on moving. But we almost want to hit that, that neo-morpheus moment where you are able just to slow time down mm. to realize, okay, if I am going to continue moving, what is the right direction for me to move that I minimize my deficit? Because in that process of just continuing to run, you might just be running into more danger. You're already in danger. Take that time. You're absolutely right. And I'll provide an analogy. So people may have heard previously that I, as a youngster, was involved in the cadets. And I've done training exercises with the regular and territorial army. And when you're doing some combat training exercises, you've literally got a rifle in your hand, you've got about 20 to 30 pounds of uh, kit on your back and you're running um, into in, in areas with quote-unquote enemy and you could be patrolling from one point and then the next thing you hear is gunshots at your, mm. at, at your head. Now obviously this is a training exercise so these aren't bullets that are going to kill you but you're hearing gunfire and you're running into cover and the first thing you need to do is what they refer to as ground appreciation which is exactly what you said there are bullets flying past your head and you need to take a moment for what they refer to as ground appreciation okay so where are the bullets coming from how many of the enemy are there roughly how many men do i have what is the health status of my men? Where are we trying to get to? What would success look like? All of these questions, and obviously this is uh, an example that most people won't be able to relate to, but for people listening, these are, you know, what are the types of questions which you need to ask in order for you to achieve success? It may be, well, what, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I'll challenge you there and say, those are exactly the same questions that people should be asking in relationships. That I should be asking in my marriage, that I should be asking in my business, in my place of work. Those exactly the, the same questions. So stop and think, okay, what have we lost? What do we still have? Mm. Where Where is the danger coming from specifically? Yeah. No, oh, exactly the same questions. That ground appreciation piece, I'm going to allow you to continue, is the same thing which many speakers say to those who have anxiety with public speaking. Appreciate that you're not going to fall. Focus on the ground. It is not crumbling below you. So stand up tall. Sorry, continue. No problem. Absolutely. And following that ground appreciation, once you've taken the time as the quote-unquote leader of the situation to understand the environment, you ask for a second opinion. Because the thing about chaos is chaos creates a skewed perspective. If you're nervous... If you're nervous and you see, you know, or if you hear bullets flying past you, you could be convinced that there are 40 <laughs> enemy at your gates when in actual fact there's two. So you must ask for that second opinion. I think this, uh, this challenge looks like X. Who is your second in command? 
What do they think the challenge looks like? Because they may have a completely different perspective. You've taken the time to appreciate the environment, but getting a, getting a second opinion is vital to making sure that you haven't completely just lost your mind due to panic and stress, which can happen to anybody. Um, and once you've done that, it is about communicating your plan and accepting that your plan will not be perfect. We're not looking for mm. perfection here. We're looking for good because you can't create a perfect plan um, off the cuff. And nobody wants a perfect plan off the cuff. If you've got four or five people looking at you in the midst of chaos, they're not looking for perfect. They're looking for a plan. They want to know that you've got something. It doesn't have to be um, you know, detailed with all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed. You just need to demonstrate to your team or to your stakeholders that we have a plan. And the plan, although it may have a couple of holes, is going to get us to where we want to get to. There's a leader I once worked with who taught me a, a phrase implicitly. He didn't explicitly teach it to me, but I noticed that he mentioned it doing those kind of moments that you're explaining. And the phrase he would state was, let's hold off before making a decision. Mm. He would have the, a, a boardroom. He would have like the battalion around him of like generals using that analogy. And everyone's looking to him because we're presenting, okay, this is the issue at hand. And I, as a very young man, initially expected him to reel off another blueprint, <laughs> but he never did. He always said, let's hold off before making a decision. And he was doing exactly what you are saying, which is he was taking the time to survey the terrain, to devise a new strategy. Yes, it feels like everything's crumbling a lot quicker than it actually is. But without taking that time to stop and think hard, you could make things worse and lose what you have still available to you. Which is why I really do admire that tagline for Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's film, Survival mm. is Victory. Because oftentimes it is the ability to survive it is the ultimate goal. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I think final, final comment that I'll, I'll mention around that is just the idea of ensuring that even if you haven't come up with a clear plan yet, that you are still reassuring the people around you that you're thinking. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's an odd one because, as you mentioned, people are going to look at you with wide eyes and assume that you have all of the answers or expect an answer from you. But as long as you're reassuring people that you are thinking, it allows you a little bit more time. Um, mm. When you get to the upper echelons of any career, you are being paid to think. Yep. So by, 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 by volunteering that information, rather than waiting for somebody to, to ask it of you, by volunteering the fact that I am just taking some time to think, it actually buys you more time and it buys you some wiggle room. Um, I constantly reiterate the idea that you can only make the best decision possible with the information that you have at hand. We don't have crystal balls. You know, we aren't fortune tellers. 
the best decision can, we can make has to be within the context of the information at hand. So the first thing we must do is an information gathering exercise, where we gather as much information as we can in order to make the best possible decision with that information. Yes. So by communicating that this is the information gathering stage, it gives you some more time and it also reassures or somewhat reassures your your soldiers, your your staff, your stakeholders, and allows you to then go off and make a feasible strategy. Especially if you have confident and or highly effective people working with you who mm. feel that they have information that you don't. Yes. I've seen it where it is possible to shoot from the hip without all of the information and find that the opposition isn't the quote-unquote enemy, but those who are actually working with you. Because they acknowledge that actually there's a, a key nugget of information that we're not taking into consideration here. So it's important to do that dig, that fact-finding piece, like where you're digging deep, you're delving deep into all of the metrics so that when that information is presented to your team first, it is one that they can run with with confidence. Love it. Love it. I love it when we shoot straight from the hip in these conversations. We went straight in. No chaser. No no chaser, no chaser. And it, it, you know, this is expensive lessons. But, but before we actually introduce expensive lessons, I'm going to share an expensive lesson. Um, very briefly, linking to this, I remember six or seven years ago, a leader who I valued suggested to me in a 360 that I wasn't being strategic enough. And it was because of this. It was because of a chaotic environment where I was doing the most, ducking, diving. I was pirouetting around bullets. That's I was ensuring that everyone was getting to that finish line. And her remark was, but are we being strategic? And it was like someone behind me, seeing me dodge all these bullets, touch me by the shoulder and stab me in the back. It, 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 oh, it hurt. But she was right because I wasn't acknowledging the terrain. I wasn't focusing on the ground to actually gather all the information necessary to ensure that what was being done used the least amount of energy for the greatest amount of impact. Not, not to, to take away from your victory there, but one interesting consideration is just the idea that if we are being strategic enough, it may mean that we don't have to dodge any bullets at all. Yes. And that was, that's exactly what she was suggesting. As you said, this is expensive lessons. <laughs> um, a really interesting way to start. 15 minutes in, just, you know, hopefully a lot of value for the people listening. Um, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode. And although we did go off on a little bit of a tangent, we are returning to our series on delivering uh, new initiatives or delivering on projects where we've been looking specifically at the Tuckman model. And as a brief recap, um, we started off looking at the first stage of the Tuckman model, which is called forming, where you form a new team based on the different skills and characteristics which you require to deliver on an objective. We then talked about storming, and storming is the idea of once you put people from different disciplines and different backgrounds all in a room, 
it's inevitable that there's going to be some conflict. Storming is a framework or an understanding that this conflict is good. It's how we get to innovation and we must facilitate this conflict in order to get to the best ideas. We then talked about norming and norming is the idea of developing a process or a collection of processes which allows your team to move efficiently and effectively. It means that the team is aware of their role and responsibility and also aware of the roles and responsibilities of others. And this is where we start seeing output. This is where we start seeing things being produced, where people can actually start delivering on the stakeholder requirements. And today we will be talking about the fourth and final stage of the original Tuckman model, which is performing. Um, and performing is where we are now delivering on all stakeholder requirements. We are bringing our project or initiative to a close and then starting to identify how can we actually exceed expectation. And this, I would argue, is a period within a project that doesn't last very long. The majority of the time, ideally, for your project should be spent norming. And maybe the last tenth or the last quarter, if, if we're being really extreme, is where we really are performing. So I really want to, to hand the baton back to you, Afalabi. Before we started uh, our chat today, you, 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 you were speaking in a lot of detail about your experiences and your thoughts on the idea of what performing means, where as a leader, you're able to almost take a step back and oversee. Could you elaborate on that? Could you tell us a little bit more? Yes, uh, performing is that, it's, it's Mount Olympus, it's where everyone wishes to get to. It's that moment where you have realized your vision with your team and they have come along with you and you're beginning to pursue marginal gains. But as a result of you realizing your, 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 your vision with your team, what you are seeing now is greater capacity and resilience. You are seeing a number of individuals in your team fulfilling the frameworks, fulfilling the performance criteria which has already been set out, and output is consistent. Now, the beauty of output being consistent is now that if you have effectively previously stormed and normed, you are able to levitate yourself away from having your hands on the steering wheel. Yes, in many respects, you are still driving the vision, you're the visionary, but the systems and structures should now be in place so that output doesn't necessarily come from you and you can focus on some more higher level thinking in terms of what are the new opportunities at hand? How are we truly caring for that which we could easily overlook but matters the most, i.e. Um, customer satisfaction it, on the minuscule and, and, and minute level, thinking about the things that they don't even realize that they care about, but they do care about and offering that to them. This is an opportunity also to start thinking about legacy. And we were speaking about this previously, because once you reach that performing stage, the issue isn't necessarily those who are embedded into your culture. The potential issue and potential danger are those who are new. 
And this is where many organizations which are extremely well run will have very lengthy induction periods because they are inaugurating all who is new to their culture. This is how we do it. This is our way. And they invest a great deal of time in that because they want to ensure that straight off the bat, there is an understanding that there is specific standards in place. There are specific frameworks and policies in place to ensure that that initial vision continues to be executed. Again, it's systems and structures at this point. There are many failing organizations or initiatives because the systems and structures weren't in place to ensure continuity. It may have lifted off at one point, but then it relied solely on one individual who at any point could fall off and everything else crumbles. So that is on a broad range, a lot of areas of successes within the performing stage. That idea of the systems and structures being in place, the policies, the frameworks, the elevation of the founder's mind to start focusing on the minuscule customer satisfaction and alternative offerings, but also legacy. So, so what I'm hearing there is when we're in the performing stage, we have created an entity which is resilient and robust, mm. but also highly protected. It's resilient because it's not reliant on a specific individual to drag it up through success. Yes. And it's robust because you've developed processes which mean that even if people are potentially new to the team, they can hit the ground running relatively quickly. But it's also highly protected because this, although robust, is still susceptible to impact from external factors such as poor or negative culture. So if you were to enter this team as a newcomer, you must prove that you are worthy, for for want of a better phrase, mm. of actually entering into this exclusive environment. You must demonstrate yes. that your culture and that your your thinking style is compatible with the people in the team. And all of those things, I think, are absolutely key because there isn't anything stopping turnover during a performing stage and there's one reason why i believe that you actually are going to get some turnover specifically while you're performing and i'll mention yes. that in a moment but i i think turnover is going to happen and a, Definitely. Uh, the mark of a, a team that's able to perform and norm effectively is that when somebody new joins the team it doesn't take long until they're also delivering um i'll give an example very quickly i don't know if many people are big fans of American football. I'm not, but I am actually very interested in the model of the Patriots, um, mm -hmm. which is an American football team. And everybody who joins the Patriots becomes almost indoctrinated in what they refer to as the Patriot way. Um, the Patriots as, as, a, as, as a football team will take people on, take... Um, take players on which have been rejected by other mainstream teams and actually able to get these individuals who maybe have uh, reputations as being divas or reputations as being difficult, able to turn them into high-performing individuals. 
And one reason is because these people almost through peer pressure are indoctrinated into this patriot way. Yes. And once you're able to do that, once you're able to demonstrate value in your culture, not only are you able to get performance or output from high, high, highly performing, high talented individuals, you're also able to get quality output from people who are less likely to deliver this in other settings. Um, that high performance is psychological. Mm. And what they have truly understood is that psychology trumps talent. Because you get to a certain stage where everyone's talented. Everyone on paper can do it. But not everyone will. And thus the systems and structures in place must ensure that it is influencing culture, which means attitudes and behaviours. If you can explicitly influence attitudes and behaviours constantly, relentlessly, doggedly, then you can ring fence performance. So, so we've talked a little bit about the what. I want to delve into the how a bit. And when we talk about how, I want to give a bit of an example. So I mentioned uh, just a moment ago that turnover actually can be quite high in high performing teams. And that's not because of some of the traditional reasons why turnover is high in companies. It's not because people aren't satisfied um, mm. in their role. It's actually because people are being poached. Yes. Um, once you've created a high-performing team, then it gives rise or gives opportunity for individuals within your team to become high performers and become highly visible both internally within your company and externally. So where they've gone from being you know, a member of your team, they are now trusted as leaders in another team. Now, with that mentality, the how that I want to discuss is how within a team, you turn team members into leaders. And also why it's important that not only are you trying to create effective team, team members, the aim is to turn every one of your team members into a leader themselves. Yes. Explicit coaching is paramount. And that explicit view that, as you said, everyone is a leader is crucial in ensuring that there's that succession. Because rightly so, an, an incredible environment, a high-performing environment will have slightly higher turnover because they are being poached. But to create capacity, there needs to be that forward thinking of talent management. Who is coming up, who needs to be poured into explicitly through line management, through reg regular modeling, so that they are being given an insight, a window into what the next stage looks like. Now, the amazing thing about this is for that recipient, for that individual, they are seeing their, their career mapped out for them which yeah. is brilliant. They are seeing what could happen. They are rubbing shoulders with not only who's next, but who's next next, their boss's boss. They are being given a platform to, to see what could be. Now, if this program is rigorous, it will include those opportunities for one-to-one -one conversations, one-to-one -one, um, reflective opportunities for the recipient to go through some of the questions that their superiors would be posed, go through some of the activities, go through some of the thought processes 
i.e. they're paid to think that their superiors will go through. Mm. What that enables is a roster, a roster of who's next. So that when the inevitable happens, which is someone leaves because there's just, there, there isn't the capacity anymore to retain. They've been poached by a bigger player. There is someone who has been immersed within the culture to fill in that role. Yeah. And that, that is the idea of almost creating leaders of leaders of leaders. Now I think we're getting almost into leader inception, but by explicitly demonstrating what you're doing with leaders, you can almost get them to do the same with people who fall below them. And when it, yes. when it comes to the, the, the concepts of developing leaders, um, it becomes ingrained in the way that you can communicate which is I don't look at my team members with expectation that they will be team members. I treat them like they are already team leaders, like they already have individuals below them that they need to look after, which means that when it comes to reviews, when it comes to feedback, they receive critique on their ability to plan. Even if the, the, the onus still falls on me, I am giving you feedback on your ability to plan or lack thereof. They critique get critique on the quality of their communication in all forms, whether it be delegation, whether it be um, reports, whether it be presentations. Because once again, I'm not measuring you as a team member. I am measuring you as a leader. And as leaders, we are held to a higher standard. So if your communication from that perspective needs work, maybe it's fine for you to be a team member and not to be very clear about your, 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 your approach. But as a leader, it's absolutely paramount that everything that you say is clearly understood. Yes. Um, and these are the types of things which allow you as a potential leader to develop the next level. The beauty of that is once these people understand that they are being held to a high standard and their work is being scrutinized at the level of a leader, it then allows us to take a step back and in doing what I refer to as winning hearts and minds. Mm. Now, I work um, in strategy, I work in market intelligence, and a lot of my day job is spent dealing with stakeholders not doing any of the nitty gritty activity that maybe I used to. And the reason is because I can trust my team to do that stuff. Whereas my job is to do some of the more political activity, um, doing some of the lobbying, which allows my team to position and actually be seen as credible. Now, I wouldn't be able to do that without a strong framework behind me. I wouldn't be able to do that without the trust that the individuals that I've left to develop strategy, for instance, are capable. But it's absolutely paramount for a performing team that the leader is able to take their hands off the wheel. And I think that's a phrase that you said earlier, which I think is absolutely key. Without doing so, they will create their own glass ceiling. Mm. And many people will not admit that they have created their own glass ceiling, but people do. People create how far they can go, partly because of the <laughs> implicit barriers placed upon them by superiors, 
Mm. But if you if you place a ceiling upon someone, they're never going to think beyond it. And you'll be surprised once you explicitly start to lift that ceiling, the kind of suggestions that will come out of it. We've spoken beforehand about the suggestions which have come out of people on paper who have been regarded as lower grade um, employees, but are integral to the company, who once actually honestly and authentically asked their opinion, were able to develop the processes or suggest the processes which saved the company millions. So this can be a gift and a curse for some people in terms of if you if you know where you want to go next in your career and you share that information with a capable leader, you're no longer being measured against your current state. You're no longer being measured against your current job description and requirements. You're now being measured against your intended job description. If you say that you want my job, that's fantastic. I love to hear that. But let's start talking about all of the areas that you need to improve on in order for you to have my job. Um, the issue comes when somebody doesn't know what, what, what their future is. And I'd argue that that is going to be something which needs to be ironed out through coaching and mentoring. Because if somebody doesn't know what the next step is for them, then I think it's very hard for them to become leaders themselves. Yes. Um, but yeah, as I said, I think it is a, it's, it's a gift and a curse because it's a gift because, yes, it's something to aspire to. It's something which you can use to motivate people. Um, it's a curse because now you're going to be scrutinized against where you want to be rather than where you are. It's fascinating because we have worked with partners who over time have become competitors. Mm. And one thing that I think we have done very well is to never become emotional about that. To never take it to heart that a partner has now become a competitor. Largely because there will come a point where that partner knows that they have become a competitor and might not feel that they can continue to engage in conversation with us. Mm. And that lack of conversation is dangerous. Cutting that channel for conversation, for the exchange of information, for the exchange of knowledge and strategy could be deadly. So I, I say this because it applies within um, line management where you have the line manager and those who's been line managed where that person might not necessarily feel that they can confidently say, well, I would like to be on your level. No, this, this is a good thing because then you can have those concrete uh, high level conversations as to, okay, what it actually means and what you'll have to do to sustain it. And, and once you have them operating at that level, you have a long-term ally, in my opinion. Yeah. Somebody who you can use effectively to monitor change, monitor performance, um, and also almost be a second-in-command when necessary. And it's fantastic when you've got three or four people who all want to get to that next level because the competition amongst them, so long as it's healthy... Yes will allow the team as a whole to level up. And, and, and I want to talk about some of the added value that comes when you actually have a team of leaders performing effectively, people who are willing to step up when you, can take, when you take a step back. And that's the stakeholder management piece. So I mentioned the, the, the political angle of my role now, where I'm engaging with stakeholders, I'm 
developing the credibility of my team and our output. So if, for instance, I've got a strategic um, plan to deliver, rather than waiting until the day of the presentation to deliver that plan, while my team is working away, developing that plan, my job is to drop a couple of comments amongst my stakeholders through conversations and meetings just to test the water. So maybe one of my team members has identified a market which is of interest. You know, we, we're going to be looking at the, uh, let's say, for instance, the driverless cars market, wherever it might be. Then maybe in my next meeting with some of these senior stakeholders, I'll just mention that and see what the response is mm. and use that information to, to report back to my team and say, well, I mentioned this and they, they, they didn't respond well. Um, and then we can come up with some sort of plan as to how we make sure that we can turn that stakeholder into an advocate, whether it's more focused energy on that individual stakeholder so that when we are actually finally producing our output, we have some allies to support us. Or vice versa, you know, if, if our, our plan to access a certain market or to, to, to produce a certain product um, is received with negativity, maybe it's because we're wrong. And by doing this early on, we're able to go back to the drawing board, revise our overall plan and deliver something which we know that our stakeholders are going to like. Yes. That process of building capacity in leadership helps us to identify when we're wrong quicker. Mm, absolutely. Because as, as leaders, we're still learning. Um, we have a, a like tacit knowledge, we have um, gained experience. However, there will be new challenges, hopefully, as we're moving to, to new terrain. But if you are the oracle, and, I, and I've seen this, I'm, I'm currently in the, 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 the forming stage um, in a new environment where I am seeing gatekeepers who are oracles, but unfortunately they aren't as knowledgeable as they think they are. And the problem with that is then everyone else below them is cult-like following them, but in the wrong direction. Yeah. But if everyone else below them was actually being upskilled in terms of leadership, then that person at the top would also become stronger because they are being challenged iron sharpens iron internally consistently in a in a diplomatic and a respectful manner because they will know that they are uh, part of your team and they're not the, the senior leader but they are being encouraged to think and articulate and strategize and if they do that they are going to eventually pose poignant questions which will challenge the strategy that you're putting in place which is a good thing i like your optimism and I, I, I really I really hope you're right. I, I've had experiences with the old guard when I've had to come in and work with a team. And in some instances, increased competition means that they step their game up, which I think is fantastic. But the other instance is when I've focused energy on the introverts within the team, the people who are less vocal, Sometimes they come out and demonstrate that they're the they were the leaders all along, mm. and the old leader, the person that everybody followed into battle, then realizes that I'm actually not as capable. Actually, no, they don't realize it. Everybody else realizes it about them, um, and that person either falls back into a 
a lower position and, and allows others to, to step up or they throw a hissy fit and leave. Yeah. Um, just, just, to, just to share a different perspective. And I think yeah. the reason why is that when we are executing this type of plan, we must always be willing to accept fallout and appreciate that some people are not going to get on board with what we're trying to deliver. And that's okay. I'm here to deliver added value. I'm here to deliver high performance. And if a team as a whole is on board and we are actually striving towards increasing of our, our, our ability, anybody who doesn't want to get with that program is worth understanding whether it's best to just let them go. And as I said, I think the most important, I always say this, but the most important thing that we should be observing when delivering any kind of new initiative is the numbers. Do, do the numbers, do the metrics, do the key performance indicator demonstrate improvement? And when we have our old guard in place with their old numbers compared to the new numbers, which one's better? So when we do receive pushback, ultimately we're talking about performance, measurable performance. And if we can demonstrate that our way is better, quote unquote, then people do need to get on board or pack their boxes. <laughs> yes. And then that is the inevitable. It's, it's what I, I'm, I know is inevitable in that forming stage, that there are those who won't last the course, but currently hold quite senior positions. Because, merely because the organization isn't in the performing stage. No. And thus those at the very top or often in middle leadership are not as good as they think they are. But ultimately, when it comes to this, and if anybody is listening, is going through that challenge, the, the best tool that you can use in order to state your case or argue your position is your data. Yep. So if you're entering in a new initiative or if you're starting a new initiative, as we said in the norming phase, you must have measurable objectives. You must have metrics that can help you state your case, things that you can use to demonstrate a trend in either the positive or the negative direction. Um, because then the conversation becomes a little bit more easier. People disagree with you. Well, people can disagree with your opinions. They can't disagree with the numbers. No. And hopefully it's an environment where the numbers were actually acknowledged beforehand. <laughs> That's another point, yeah. Because, yeah, I guess there is that other piece of convincing people that gut feel and opinion isn't the best measure. And, yes, I've definitely been in environments where I've shared the idea of measuring performance and people looking at me like I was crazy. So you're absolutely right that there is a need to make sure that people are persuaded that metrics, key performance indicators, are the best way to measure performance. Um, I want to talk uh, finally from my perspective on the idea of what well, within performing anyway, um, the idea of meeting the customer's requirement. When we are performing, it is key that the customer's requirements are met. And it sounds almost 
like a no-brainer. But you'll be surprised. Well, anybody here who works in project management probably won't be surprised. But it's surprising how often people deliver projects where the customer's requirements aren't met. If you want to, if you want proof of that, just have a look at how many companies file bankruptcy in a year. Um, I think I've mentioned previously um, one of my favorite programs to watch is Gordon uh, Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. <laughs> and all of these restaurants are absolutely flabbergasted as to why they're not making any money. None of them understand why their incredible recipes aren't generating the kind of income or their quirky decor isn't pulling in the type of people that they want. And it's fascinating because the first thing Gordon Ramsay does when he goes to these restaurants is eat the food. And I think of all of the episodes that I've seen, I can only remember one episode where he likes the food. The majority of the episodes, he goes in, he tastes the food and says, this is rubbish. And, you know, you know, Gordon Ramsay, he rips the food apart. And I, and I think what that demonstrates is many people are executing, many people are delivering without taking the most important criteria into consideration, which is, does the end user, does the stakeholder, does the customer like it? Does do they want it? Um, and I'm not ripping into anyone because I believe it's very easy to come off track because what we tend to do is we say, well, I like it or, well, I think it's good. But when you're performing, that's not good enough. When we're performing, we must make sure that our target users, our target customers, our stakeholders are happy with the output. And... To you, FLRB, what are the ways in which we can ensure during the performing stage that our output is pleasing to our stakeholders? Mentioning Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares is, is, is brilliant because the process that he goes through is, is a model for all of us. Um, he, he, he sits down, he eats the, the food, um, he then goes to the source, goes back to the kitchen to mm. investigate the, the staff, um, who's actually producing this food, he investigates where the food is coming from, which is usually him opening the freezer and finding lasagna, which is two years old. Um, he investigates uh, the head chef um, and the owner. There's a moment where the cameras pan to some of the customers who are waiting two hours for something that they ordered, i.e. a drink. So that interrogation of the full process of, okay, what is it like? Where does it come from? Who's handling it? Who owns it? And what do the customers actually say about it? It's just crucial. Do each of those steps. And in the process, you will find areas for development. Is it that when you've gone into the kitchen, you found out that the, the staff are underskilled and they haven't been trained necessarily and they're using strategies which are decades old? Is it that the food is off? Is it that the, the, the founder actually isn't present at any moment to actually see to quality assure what's occurring? Is it that when you speak to the, the customers, no one's ever actually spoken to them <laughs> beforehand? <laughs> but these steps are steps which we can all take to ensure that actually our, the customer is being put first. Um, test the product. Test the origins of the product. Test the, the makeup. Test, test the, 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 the delivery. Um, 
survey a wide variety of customers to uh, acknowledge, okay, what is the level of customer satisfaction? What is good about it? What is not good about it? How could it be improved? And there's another step, which is not ever present on that show, but some companies are doing right now, which is to really interrogate what the customer doesn't even know that they want yes. yet. What well, should they want? Now, this is really thought leadership. And this I, is I, 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 wants to be, go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll delve into that a little bit with, with Gordon Ramsay's show because there's a few examples of that where Gordon Ramsay has come into a restaurant and seen that you know their menu is failing. And then he's gone into the town. And let's say this is an Italian restaurant. And he's gone into the town and seen that there are about 20 other Italian restaurants. And then because he's an experienced chef, he just asked the question, well, what don't they have? And, and you know, in this instance, or in a, in a recent episode I saw, it was, they didn't have a steakhouse. In this, in this town, there was no steakhouse. There was no way you could go to get a good steak. There were mm. good local butchers, but no, no steakhouses. Um, and that's the example where he just added value by just having a look at what mm. there wasn't. Um, he, he would canvas the, 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 the town or canvas the, the customers and ask them, you know, is this something that you'd be interested in? Absolutely. And, and then go into the process of implementing. So put, putting the customer's needs and putting the customer's desires first is absolutely key. And one thing that I always find interesting is when, when Gordon Ramsay collects a, a group of previous customers and brings them back to the restaurant to speak to the owner and they spend five to 10 minutes just telling them how they felt. And in most instances, the owner's combative. The owner's arguing with his customers, saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And I just, I find that interesting because I understand where that feeling comes from when you believe you've created an amazing product. It's so tempting to convince yourself that other people who are critiquing it are wrong. But if the people who are trading their cash for your product tell you that your product is trash, you must believe them, especially if they're saying it en masse. Um, and this goes even further. You know, if, a, if an end user, if a stakeholder says that it, they don't like something, becoming argumentative is never a good way of getting them on side. Or <laughs> the no. other thing that people do is trying to convince your customer that they actually like it, <laughs> which I've seen as well. Like, no, 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 you just don't know what you, you, you like. It's not you just don't get work. it. You just don't get it. Or, well, if you just think about it this way, then maybe, it, no, it, no. The customer has told you how they feel. The approach that you should take simply is, why do you feel that way? Mm. And what can I do to change your perspective? Put the, it, put the control in the hands of the customer, not in your own hands, and you will see that they are more receptive and they're more willing to give feedback. So that, that's a point that I just wanted to mention, I think really crucial around stakeholder management, understanding your end user, because I think in the performing stage, it's very easy to get on a roll and to deliver without making sure that what you're producing is to the customer's taste. So um, 
that that was the final point that I wanted to mention on the uh, performing phase. Almost Anything a, from you on that, Afalabi? No, just a, a comical example of that in occurrence right now. I was, I was reading an article a couple days ago. Um, I can't remember whether it was on the Guardian or the BBC website. And it was about a, a restaurant in Canada, a Chinese restaurant in Canada, who had rebranded their descriptions. And the descriptions were, like me, I'm just paraphrasing them, on the lines of, not that great, but worth a trial for one item. Or another item, it would be slightly too dry and not as good as so-and-so's. So, And what this restaurant owner had done was to produce honest and authentically damning descriptions for their food. Mm. And what this led to was someone actually tweeting it and him just being overwhelmed with visitors because people wanted to actually find out okay who who is this and what is this food actually like it's been described as not that great slightly too dry um not as good as the original you'll get a better version at so and so's and people were just fascinated by it and when he was interviewed he said well well sales are down and i just had to be honest before we were actually improving like our food is average or just slightly above average direct quote he had you can take so much away from that I love it. He'd listen to his customers. And maybe in the process of us actually, okay, um, acknowledging the ground, those bullets are coming. We've listened to our customers. We know we want to change tact. But maybe in the short term, there are things that we can do just to remain alive. And for him, during COVID, it was, I need to stop lying about these descriptions. (laughs) For someone else, it might be, I need to change my price point. <laughs> my wife knows how I feel about that. Like, if, if I go, we, we, we've, we've gone traveling together and I've gone to restaurants and I've seen, lo- well, I've seen loads of restaurants around when, when we've gone traveling. And I've got a rule, which is if your restaurant's title, if your restaurant's name is World's Best X, I'm not going <laughs> I'm not in I'm not entering. World's best pizza. Nope. World's best Italian. Nope. Because I don't believe you. And nobody believes you. So for me, anyway, it's just a general rule that I'm not entering your restaurant if you are titled world's best. Yes. Um I mean that's a really good example. And I think it also demonstrates the importance of that stakeholder management because what you've done there is you've given your stakeholder a voice. And mm your customers are more likely or your stakeholders are more likely to engage with other stakeholders or relate to other stakeholders than they are to relate with you because your relationship is so much more transactional. So there we have it. We've spoken about forming a team. We've spoken about the process of developing a set of innovative ideas through storming and, and, and facilitating conflict. Um, we've talked about creating processes and a, a team structure which allows for quality output to be produced. And today we've talked about performing. We've talked about the ability to exceed customer expectations, to create new leaders, and to add value. Um, the final thing I want to mention is a step 
which was actually added to the Tuckman model in the 70s, but I didn't think it required a full episode. And that is adjourning. And you can see it was it, it, it's an add-on because it doesn't have the same rhyme and structure. But adjourning is simply the idea that once your once your project has been delivered, it's now the responsibility of the team to disband. This team was formed with the aim of developing a completely specific outcome. The individuals, the disciplines were brought together with that in mind. So now that that outcome has been delivered, that team is no longer the best team for the specific objective. So we then go back to square one, which is identifying a problem, forming a team, and then delivering outcomes or output based on, on that objective. But with that in mind, when we are adjourning, when we are ending our, init uh, our, our initial project, the only thing I wanted to talk about here of any significance is the importance of learning from previous lessons. And Afalabi, I'll hand over to you for that in terms of the last points, really. But from your experience, how can people effectively walk away from any kind of initiative taking away key lessons learned? Before that, I'll just mention, this is the reason why so many struggle to maintain success over a prolonged period of time. This is the reason why you can have championship winning teams for like three years in a row and the fourth year, it just, it just seems to crumble. And everyone's wondering, okay, what's happened? But pe people need a new goal. Mm. And that needs to be carefully curated so that it is compelling enough to drive everyone to continue to do it again. Yeah. And if that doesn't happen, then as Abby mentioned, that, that, that team is now almost defunct. It, it, its purpose is no longer actually its purpose because it's fulfilled it. Mm. Other teams have that purpose and now they're doing it. In terms of the reflection, in terms of actually reflecting upon tacit knowledge, I think the key is not to attempt to do it solely at the end. Because mm. when you attempt to do it solely at the end, you miss so many nuggets. It is to do it sporadically and more systematically throughout. And to keep the resource, the mechanism that you're doing it. Yeah. So for example, I found a couple of weeks ago, a diary from 2017. I'm just flicking through it. I found um, a list of just wisdoms, things I'd learned in that day. And one of them actually linked to one of our previous guests, um, Asia from The Renatural. And I remember in 2017, I remember meeting her and writing down, um, the second time is always easier than the first. Asia, Alera Jasmine at that time. Now I have, the mechanism I'm focusing on is I've got that book, I've got that diary from that year. I've got that calendar from that year. I've got that minutes from that year. How often are we stopping to just reflect upon wins, reflect upon lessons. Expensive lessons as a platform from us enables us to do it on a weekly basis. But for you, it might be on a quarterly basis. You just stop to say, okay, how can I improve my CV? What have I actually accomplished? What have I done? What have I learned? Mm. Um, how far has the team moved forward? Where are we now compared to where we were beforehand? What are we doing now 
that we weren't doing and why are we doing it and just recording it somewhere documenting it somewhere intermittently and in the process of you doing that you might be thinking about the Tuckman model in terms of each of these stages because as I mentioned previously it's possible that in the norming stage you could come across a, an obstacle which pulls you back into storming pulls yeah. you back into conflict document it and share that with the team That's a perfect place to end. I think there's some food for thought there. Um, the, the importance of reflection on a frequent basis is a key tool. It's a key tool um, to allow you to grow and develop. And all of the best performers, CEOs, business leaders have a structured approach to lessons learned, to... Um, reflection as you said so so maybe that's an episode for another day in terms of how we can go about reflecting effectively and talking uh, about some of the lessons that we've picked up and also um, some of the tools that we employ in order to reflect effectively but for this episode really hope you've enjoyed this series uh, to start off to start off the new year in 2021 uh, it's undoubted that there are going to be some challenges, but why not you? Why not? Why not this year? Let this be a year where you can run with the punches and also deliver some excellent output. And if this model can help you achieve that, then revisit it. Revisit it on a regular basis if you need to, because I think there are some things that may become true in your life as you begin to execute. As always, we're here to listen and we're here to learn. So if you've got any experiences that you'd like to share with us, feel free to get in touch and you never know, you might join us for an episode. But in the meantime, we wish you all the best. We wish you an amazing 2021. Stay tuned for more episodes. This has been Expensive Lessons, where company directors share with you lessons they've learned during their winding road of forming, storming, norming and performing. And we hope you join us for the next one. Take care. Take care all. God bless.